The other story is my mom. Her, along with two friends, as children, 11, 12 years old, they ran away from the residential school. They were caught, brought back. The punishment they received was quite disturbing. Their heads were shaved, completely bald. That's Dennis Meaches. He's chief of the Long Plains First Nations, Treaty 1 Territory in Manitoba. He's our guest today on the Akamema Podcast. Tanse, Tuwal, and welcome to the Akamema Podcast. I'm your host, Harry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Akamema is Cree for you all persevere, or in other words, let's keep going and don't give up. So on this podcast, we discuss leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders, and community leaders. One of those leading issues is the damaging legacy of the residential school system on First Nations people, and the recent decision by the federal government to add two former residential schools to the National Historic Site Registry, the school at Long Plains, Manitoba, and the school at Shubenagadi in Nova Scotia. For over a century, the Canadian government ran the residential school program as a tool of genocide against First Nations people. Tens of thousands of children were torn from their families, they were sent away to boarding schools, and they were subjugated to brutal physical, mental, and sexual abuse in an effort to assimilate them into settler culture. The federal government says that adding the Portage La Prairie Residential School in Manitoba and the Shubenacadie Residential School in Nova Scotia to the National Site Registry will, quote, help to educate all Canadians on the system and its consequences and ensure that this part of our history is never forgotten or repeated. The Portage La Prairie Residential School is now owned by the Long Plain First Nations. Their chief there is Dennis Meaches. Welcome to the podcast, Chief Dennis Meaches. Thank you, National Chief. Again, great big welcome. And so this big day to have the Portage La Prairie Residential School added what does that mean for you in the Long Plain First Nations? Well, it's been a long time coming. Uh, we're quite pleased with that decision. Um, we've been working for quite a many years uh, on getting National Historic Site status. We did manage to achieve uh, Provincial Heritage status back in 2005. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always been um, you know, a long goal, long time goal for Long Plain to, uh, with the building and uh, to preserve the history of residential schools. Um, so in a lot of ways, it's destiny. And we're fortunate that uh, we acquired this land back in 1981 as part of our treaty land entitlement acknowledgement of that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you've got this now, this National Historic Site status and designation. And we, we've talked about the importance to help educate all peoples. Can you tell some of the history of that residential school? Why do you think it was chosen and how does that impact that history impact on your people in the territory there? Okay, so Portage La Prairie, it's uh, in southern Manitoba, basically central, centrally located. Uh, the Long Plain First Nation, we're about 20 minutes southwest of that. Um, and the residential school opened up in 1915 uh, mm-hmm. and closed in the 70s. Um, but there is a long history. Thousands of children went to that school and schools right across the country. Um, under Chief Ernie Daniels, that property was acquired under a treaty land entitlement acknowledgement, 45 acres. 
Um, and they initially, when the property was acquired, uh, the building wasn't quite quite disrepair. Uh, basically, a derelict uh, building. Grounds were unkept. Uh, when we assumed uh, ownership of the property, uh, there was work to convert it to a Yelko College, which was the first home of the college. Ironically enough, the Yelko College is now located at our Madison Reserve in the city of Winnipeg. So. Mm-hmm. Um, over the years, the building has had a number of different tenants. Um, we've maintained the building, um, renovated the building, maintained the grounds. Uh, so there's a lot of history to it. A uh, lot of long plane. Uh, people went to that school and um, as they have across the country. Hmm. Can you share some of the stories like your, your aunts probably went there, your uncles, maybe some of your immediate family members? <laughs> Can you share any of their stories that you might have heard over the years in terms of the impact that this school, Long Plain, had on their, their on themselves and their family? Sure. Uh, two of them in particular. Um, one, my uncle, uh, Norman Peters, he attended that school um, as a child. And uh, he shared a story with me and he had I got permission to, to share the story. He had, uh, he believed he had pneumonia and just outside of the, uh, the stairway, the stairwell of the building, there's a, a grate there. Um, and that's where they, they put him uh, at, in the night. Uh, I guess they believed he wouldn't last through the night and that uh, he may pass away because of uh, his condition. Mm-hmm. His friend, a young friend, uh, went, snuck out and spent the night with him. Thank God he did survive. Uh, so to me, that's quite disturbing quite shocking to hear that instead of trying to you know assist him and support him and during his illness they they put him outside it's just unbelievable that happened Mm -hmm. the other story is my mom her along with two friends they uh, you know as children 11 12 years old they they ran away from the school and they were working working their way along the Assiniboine River they were caught brought back and the punishment they received was also quite disturbing. Their heads were shaved, uh, completely bald. Later on in the evening, at uh, during supper time, when they came down for supper, they had put these bags over their heads because uh, they were quite ashamed uh, on what had happened to them. Matron comes mm-hmm. along and just rips the bags off their heads to expose what had been, you know, the punishment that they had received. So that's quite mm-hmm. disturbing, also too, right? And, yeah. and the stories just go on and on. The, um, it's quite shocking, uh, you know, the things that had happened to children at that school. Yeah. No, it's like for the for all the listeners, uh, we've talked about residential schools and the, the, the policy they had about uh, the severe punishment for speaking your language. You know, uh, there's always that severe punishment from electric chairs to being punished, shaving the heads, uh, tacks and and sharp objects on your tongue for speaking um but you've gave you've given some some pretty concrete examples about the abuse and you know uh, your uncle norman being put out to die like he's sick just put him outside to die you know no proper health care and then the embarrassment and, and and the shame by running away from an abusive school the shavings of the head and then the the the, the nuns taking them off just to, to the humiliation so i've always said 
that these residential schools were a genocide of people because it really killed our spirit in ourselves, in our families, in our communities, and cut off from our our, our people. Um, so very concrete examples. Um, now there was there was uh, some talk from some of your relatives and your people that at Portage La Prairie there is a, a room called the dungeon. Can you share any thoughts or stories or, or teachings or whatever you heard about this room called the dungeon by some of the students that went there? That's correct. It's a three-story building and the main floor is kind of like a basement. And there was a room there, a dark room, um, and had, of course, uh, a place where uh, children were placed, uh, put in there to as punishment also too. So can you imagine that? A young child, um, you know, six years old, seven, eight, nine, ten, being placed in there all alone as a punishment for speaking your language. Uh, but it is quite... Uh, notorious uh you know the punishment that people receive but also to have a specific room designed for scaring the children of residential school um, so that's also a very disturbing story that was shared by many of our relatives and friends that attended residential schools mm. so they had a specific place for punishment to uh students that attended porters the prairie school and it was called a dungeon and uh, it's amazing. I've always said, again, uh, the abuses that our, our people, uh, our relatives, you know, our, our fathers, grandfathers, mothers, grandmothers, or all of our relatives, uh, when they went to these residential schools, that's why we always lift them up as survivors, um, because this was a genocide uh, between the, the, the not being allowed to speak your language to the, the breakdown of your self-identity and the pride on being an, an Anishinaabe or a Cree Nihewak person, or a Blackfoot person, or a Mi'kmaq person, that was really stripped away. And then no ties to families. And I've, I've always said it this way, that it broke down our, our identity and self, family, communities, and nations. And people didn't know how to love or give love, didn't know how to parent or, or be good parents. And, and so a lot of times now, you see that family breakup, and a lot of people turn to, uh, they self-medicate. You know, so there's a lot of a, a, a alcohol abuse or sometimes drug abuse, and we see the the examples of family breakup, and and even you know today is is uh, National Suicide Day Prevention Day, and uh, some people thought about that. You know, is that can residential schools be linked to to that whole piece on suicide because youth suicide is five to seven times the national average right now? What are your thoughts on that, Chief? I think there's a direct uh, correlation to what's happened at residential schools uh, and uh, just basically government policies and legislation, their social policies throughout the years have had a very damaging effect on indigenous people, their way of life, our way of life. Um, it's just quite evident it's, uh, uh, that uh, laws, policies uh, work to kill the Indian and the child and uh, residential schools quite notorious for that uh, by ripping families apart um, and uh, just be, you know, just working to destroy the indigenous uh, social fabric. Uh, and uh, it has damaging effects generation after generation. The intergenerational trauma is quite, uh, quite challenging for, for many of us. Uh, I, I don't think there's no family that's untouched um, uh, by, by this that, uh, because of the uh, you know the government's policies of the day and their legislation, 
And in some ways that continues on to this day. Uh, so there's a lot of work to do. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, we're again, it's a blessing, but sometimes it's bittersweet that um, in some ways destiny that we do have uh, this residential school located uh, at our Kishkimokwa Reserve in Portage and how we would like to bring awareness, education um, about the damaging effects of residential schools, that dark experience, uh, residential school experience that, that our, our people had went through. So right now, so if somebody was to go to Portage La Prairie right now and go to the school, is it the doors are open? Is it like a museum? Is are there tours? Are there can people walk around and see things? Or what can people engage or, or see if they visit the, the residential school right now? So it is quite quite a number of years ago we started working on the plans of creating into a national indigenous residential school museum, and uh, over the years we had different uh, people working for for us at, at, uh, at the residential school, people like Shannon Salinsky, Michael Meaches, who's a curator, is actually up in uh, Southwest uh, United States, uh, working for, I think, a museum up there. But um, we've had a lot of great people working um, and helping to uh, develop and, and um, opening up the doors of the residential school museum. And, you know, kudos to all of those people, our board of directors, uh, and current, our current director, Lorraine Daniels, who was quite instrumental in getting this designation. Um, and over the years, we've had numerous uh, tours come through uh, the building. And, uh, you know, we have usually get survivors that would come in and share their experiences and their stories on what happened there. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of work that we need to undertake to, to, to see this through and to have a full-fledged um, Indigenous Residential School Museum, which would, is a Portage in, Indian Residential School. Um, and a lot of stories to share, uh, a lot of work to do over the coming years. In 2005, when the Heritage Provincial Government uh, designated a heritage site, we had erected a eagle statue on the site of the building. So if you're traveling through Portage area on the Trans-Canada, if you take a look north, uh, um, just on by the the uh, bypassing portage, you'll see that uh, big eagle statue rising up above the treetops. That's a memorial of two uh, victims and survivors of residential schools. Um, the eagle being our messenger, and the eagle being uh, carrying our our prayers to our Creator, um, and rising above that time period that uh, that. Uh, really had a hidden agenda, and that was to destroy the indigenous way of life, basically. And so, uh, yeah, we it's the goal is to have work towards a full, fully uh, functioning museum um, and uh, undertaking tours. We actually had a tour come through a couple of days ago, uh, PCI students. Uh, it was um, basically uh, spontaneous, but they, they had a lot of questions. Uh, because uh, uh, in, in general, I think Canadians really uh, did not know what happened at these schools. And still a lot of them are just now beginning to understand uh, what happened at these schools. So it's a place for education and awareness. And so it's a way of uh, of showing Canadians, you know, like we've said, like not only educating Canadians, but our own people about the impacts that these institutions had on our people. 
And so it's a, it's a good way to educate all people. And, and, and you're starting that. So you're working towards the museum and uh, an education awareness process, which is really awesome. Now, you mentioned in 1981, uh, this was part of the treaty land entitlement transfer. So because most uh, residential schools are on federal crown land, uh, but through treaty again, as we know, the, the crown has a debt owed to First Nations people for land if our reservations weren't up to the, the, the formula, if you will, that, that was part of our treaty arrangement with the crown. And so as part of the TLE in 1981, uh, it was transferred to Long Plains. And in your case, you're Treaty 1. I'm from Treaty 4. So next year, it'll be the 150th uh, anniversary of, of Treaty 1 entering into a relationship with the crown as a, a sovereign people. So let's talk about Treaty 1 and, and some of the thoughts and plans for next year's uh, um, gathering for the Treaty 1 people. Thanks. Uh, yesterday, we actually had a Treaty 1 Nation meeting. And uh, for those that may be familiar with the uh, Kapyong, um, many of us uh, leaders uh, and Indigenous people have been working towards uniting Treaty 1 Nation, the Treaty 1, uh, the seven reserves. Um, and I think Kapyong has been the vehicle that has been able to bind us. Um, and so the Treaty 1 Nation government uh, is fully functional. Uh, we have a Treaty 1 Development Corporation that's tasked to uh, begin the developments of the Kapyong, which is 110 acres of land that was, uh, well, it's been a, it's a long story, declared surplus, similarly to what happened at Long Plain with the uh, that former residential school, the land was declared surplus. We went after it along with uh, Broken Head. Um, of course, government put up a, uh, a fight, dug in their heels. Uh, man, we ended up in court 15 years. Uh, but last year, I think it was August the 30th, we finally signed a settlement agreement. So um, we're, our 150th is coming up on August the 3rd, um, and we're working towards a major celebration of that treaty. We consider, you know, always a lot of people, again, uh, uh, we're working towards strengthening Treaty 1 Nation. Uh, we, we believe that a strong Treaty 1 government makes a stronger Canada. Uh, no question in my mind. The reserve system, uh, all that it is and all that it represents uh, is really, in my opinion, based on uh, a feudal system of government, the Indian Act. Um, so I think we're the only people in in this country uh, where just because of the Indian Act, they basically tried to destroy our political strength and our foundation. The reserve system does not work. So many of us are working towards um, the treaty relationship and, and strengthening that relationship with the Crown. Um, we believe that's the right approach to take. Um, and uh, we hope that I think a lot of great things can come from that. So our, our goal is to eventually have uh, 150 hopefully have reserves stat status created on some of the parcels that at cap young which is fairly large would become one of canada's largest urban reserve in a major city right on so it's uh for the listeners that may not know cap young barracks are in winnipeg it's 110 acres and it's i would say it's collectively held by the seven first nations in treaty one correct chief that's right that they we refer to it as, well, a common reserve. It'll be collectively owned yeah. by the seven First Nations. Um, and government refers to it as a joint reserve. Um, so we're still 
working those things out. And uh, yeah, and you know, we hope that government will recognize that. I know, I know, you, uh, National Chief, will work towards uh, helping facilitate that transition and and supporting the uh, Treaty One Nation efforts in terms of um, being being able to get that reserve creation. Hopefully, symbolically, we can get that done or at least part of it on the 150. My total support, Chief uh, Dennis, because even back home, I'm Little Black Bear, my home res, uh, he was a chief that entered a treaty with the Crown, Treaty Number 4. And uh, we have a collectively held reserve at Fort Capel, Saskatchewan, by all 34 First Nations that entered into a treaty uh, with the Crown at that time. And I know we have seven on the Manitoba side, uh, Waiwisikapo and Gamblers and Saputayak and Wasquisi. Like, so though uh, we joke sometimes, we call them the, the Eastern portion i want to use that word indian but yeah eastern indians as part of treaty four so we have that example and we learned from that back home about um collectively held reserves for for all of our people as it's part of that treaty and it's it's really united uh, the treaty four and i'm really happy to see that cap young has united treaty one and uh, you mentioned would you say this is the way for treaty one to get beyond the indian act as a treaty one uh uh, unit, tribe, nation, government, however you want to refer to it? Yes. Uh, so having a Treaty 1 nation government, uh, basically anything that happens within the Treaty 1 territory should be negotiated with the Treaty 1 nation. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, we basically binding ourselves. So politically, for example, maybe we tried this on a provincial uh, scale, but uniform elections. Um, so eventually Treaty 1 nation would have a common day election, the seven reserves. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, just to strengthen the uh, political uh, um, body of Treaty 1, because you think about it, you know, you go to um, AFN assemblies or AMC um, or Southern Chiefs, there's a constant rotation of chiefs nonstop. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Manitoba, for example, 64 First Nations, 64 independent First Nations, um, and having 64 election cycles could be under Section 74 of the Indian Act, or it could be custom code. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of chaos, I think, with that election, the way uh, we currently live under. So the goal would be to bind Treaty 1 Nation The goal would be to have one election system eventually for the Treaty 1 Nation and same voting day, same, uh, basically just strengthening our our political position um, as Treaty 1 Nation. And really, when you think about it, um, that is the only real option available to us. Um, So, you know, someday, uh, being Anishinaabe, Someday, uh, of course, Anishinaabe are right across Turtle Island and not only in mm-hmm. Canada, United States, even in Mexico, Anishinaabe tribes. So the to be able to bind ourselves collectively um, and working in political uh, treaty units like that, I think it, it'll go a long way to mm-hmm. resolving a lot of outstanding issues. Uh, and to me, the Indigenous economy is paramount. It's really important. Uh so I've always pushed hard. Uh, I've been in office 24 years. And mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's there. I understood that early on in my career, political career, that there's just no way in hell that government funding is going to be enough to help First Nation. We needed to repatriate our economy because, yes, we did. We definitely had strong 
a strong indigenous economy prior to, right? So mm-hmm. transitioning into this new way, uh, you know, Western society and being able to ingrain yourselves with a strong indigenous uh, economy. And that includes creating corporations. I mean, that's kind of like a, a word that many people don't like, uh, the municipalization of indigenous first nations. Uh, I Myself, I... Um, totally against the municipalization of, of our First Nations, but a lot of people think that's what's happening. Uh, for me, it's the exact opposite. Uh, the strength of um, Treaty One Nation, we think it'll be a very, very uh, strong Treaty One Nation being able to deliver on on the economic side, creating mm-hmm. um, you know a strong Indigenous economy, Indigenomics. Uh, so to me, that's the goal and to be able to strengthen the political uh, unity of, of Treaty One Nation, that's that's the way to go. That is. That's a strong statement. Basically, you're exerting your jurisdiction beyond your reserve boundaries and throughout Treaty One territory to really participate in sharing the land and resource wealth with everybody. And uh, the economy is a very important piece. And coming from a Treaty One territory perspective is very key. And that's all part of the, uh, the Cap Young Barracks, the urban... Uh, First Nations Reserve that's collectively held by the seven First Nations. And this is tied into the August 3rd, 2021, the 150-year acknowledgement of uh, entering the treaty with the Crown. So that's very, very powerful statements going forward, Chief Dennis. Now, today is World Suicide Prevention Day, September 10th. And uh, we did talk about, you know, the impacts uh, of the residential schools uh, on our people and uh, the linkages possibly to suicide. And, and, And we always tell people that, uh, there's always there's always hope for the future. Hope for yourselves that to the anybody thinking about it that you are important, you are loved, and you are special, and you have gifts to share with yourself, your family, and your community, your nation. That's always the message we have going forward. So this hope piece. Now, as Chief Dennis Meaches of Long Plain First Nation, what gives you hope, and what can you share with people to provide hope going forward? In acknowledgement of Suicide Prevention Day. Many families, including my own, we've all experienced relations, relatives that have uh, committed suicide. And it really points back to, again, social policies of government, legislation of government, uh, and, you know, residential schools, 60s scoop, uh, all of these uh, social policies that had a very damaging effect on our way of life contributed to uh, one of the highest if not the highest suicide rates in the world. So uh, again, uh, repatriating our our languages, our cultures, our um, customs, our heritage um, is paramount. And I think mm. I think people are starting to recognize that. Can can you imagine if the government never introduced legislation that bans ceremonies, our languages, our our customs? Basically, they they practically banned and put people in jail because they're practicing our customs. And to me, that's, again, quite disturbing. And that, you know, government really did everything they could. They pulled out all the stops on trying to basically uh, assimilate Indigenous people. They had it all, they had it all wrong from the get-go. They should have uh, worked in true partnership under that treaty relationship and allowed, um, you know, our First Nations, our people, our ancestors to to live in peace and harmony, as was, we believed, uh, the treaty would bring. Uh, of course, it didn't. And of course, we're still fighting to defend our treaty, our land claims, our 
you know, our way of life. Uh, but I think now Canadians um, are very supportive, and I believe I, I believe majority of Canadians are truly sincere in working with Indigenous people um, and advancing that cause. Right. So mm-hmm. I really hope uh, we can achieve. Um, me, of course, me, I'm an eternal optimist. Uh, growing up in Long Plain, I went through a lot too, and with parents, grandparents, relatives, and just seeing the poverty, the the social dysfunction, and and it was quite quite uh, challenging. But I I'm very fortunate. At the same time, cultural the cultural threads running through uh, were helped helped us you know repair that social fabric. Um, mm. So that that to me that's that's where we need to concentrate on, and that's why I'm really um, really tough on the. Uh, pushing hard on the indigenous economy because that's what the young people want. They want to. They want to work. They want a job. Um, mm-hmm. And if we create these companies and corporations, uh, indigenous owned, they can put back into the community. They can. You know, we can really support. Uh, in Long Plain, uh, we're fortunate. We have uh, two urban reserves and and also waiting for Capyong. We have one of the highest uh, social card spending programs of any First Nation in this province, if not this country. So uh, the economy is quite important to Long Plain First Nation and the expansion of our corporate interests, our corporate uh, uh, agenda is really, really uh, important to Long Plain. Hmm. Well, that's a, a very powerful message, Chief Dennis Meaches, to, to close off on on our podcast in terms of hope, repatriation of our languages, customs and traditions. So it's like knowing who you are, where you come from, bringing that pride back amongst yourself as Anishinaabe, you know, as Anishinaabe, speaking Anishinaabe, you know, that language, that beautiful language the creator gave us. Uh, you talked about the importance of the economy and providing jobs for young people, your corporate interests, and really providing hope that way. And and you've done a lot at Long Plains to, to really show that how First Nations can get involved in business and the economy and provide jobs. So that a lot of hope in that perspective. And then you mentioned the majority of Canadians supporting supporting our issues and uh that is such a hopeful way to to look at it because the majority of canadians and we just finished a nanos poll 79 percent of canadians believe it's important for the federal government to focus on like i won't say our issues but these issues of having access to clean potable water having access to to good quality housing and the, the the jobs you talk about you know focusing on our languages through bill c91 and bringing back our children home through Bill C-90. All those have our support. Even the UN Declaration has been supported by the majority of Canadians to see it uh, honoured, respected. So, Chief, that's a strong message of hope. Um, any last comments from yourself as Chief Dennis Meaches from Long Plain First Nation for our podcast? Just uh, with the pandemic and COVID-19, um, for... Many of us, I, I know I remind my children and um, my people, uh, uh, our grandfather, grandmothers, they were six years old, seven years old, when they walked through uh, the Spanish flu. And uh, many Indigenous people uh, passed away. And the world over, I think, uh, estimates in the 40, 40 million range, a lot of people passed away. Um, so it's this... Uh, pandemic we're currently in gives us a time uh it's a great pause in terms of having that opportunity to reflect on who you are your family your community to re 
focus your energies on strengthening uh, the family units, uh, the communities, uh, and just being able to navigate ourselves through uh, and working with other jurisdictions because uh, we are all in this together. And uh, because of information and technology, we have real-time re- you know, information on what's happening globally. So just want to wish everybody a safe passage, stay safe and stay well as we navigate our way out of this uh, current pandemic we find ourselves in. All right, thank you so much. That was Chief Dennis Meaches of the Long Plain First Nations, Treaty 1 Territory in Manitoba. Thanks so much for coming on the Akamemuk Podcast. Miigwech, thank you. And I want to thank all the people for listening to the Akamemuk Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating and tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in Southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations.